So our passage this morning is going to be uh, back in Luke chapter 8, which is the series that we've been going through. Luke chapter 8, um, I'm going to read uh, verses 22 on through, uh, let's see, my page there, through 39. That's on page 865 of the Blue Bibles, if you're using those. So Luke chapter 8, page, page 865. Now read starting in verse 22. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, And they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city, how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that as we look at these two stories about your authority and about your power, that you would help us see you through the eyes of faith like your apostles did. And I pray that you would persuade us of that and point us to the hope that we can have that one day you will put an end to every storm. We pray this in your name. Amen. So in our last sermon in Luke, which was two weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the four soils, which is near the beginning of this chapter. And in that story, Jesus uses the word hear seven times, which is a clue that the parable is about how we hear the word of God. And the word of God, remember, is the gospel. 
It's the announcement, it's the information that God's kingdom has come and it's breaking into the world here and now. And it's also a call to reorder our lives, to give that kingdom the first place in our hearts, to make it the highest source of joy, wisdom, and authority in our lives. That's over our relationships, our feelings, or any other thing. So between that passage and this one, the word here keeps showing up. So if we looked at verse 18, we would see, take care then, Jesus says, how you hear. And then in verse 21, he says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So Jesus is looking for people who will hear the word of God, the announcement and the call of the gospel and do it. They'll order their lives around it. So these are bold words by themselves, but Jesus ups the game by putting himself at the center of this call. See, in Luke 6, a couple chapters before, Jesus says, anyone who hears not God's word, but my words and does them will stand on a foundation that endures the storms of life into eternity. Not God's words, my words. Jesus claims an authority equal to that of God the Father. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, which is probably better known for now, was a public Christian intellectual as well. In a book called Mere Christianity, he wrote these words. He wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that's Christ, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, Lewis is very helpfully outlining the claim that Jesus makes about the word of God. He talks about God's words and his words in a way that ties the two together so that you can't separate them. And he says, he's asking you to trust him as if he is equal to God. We can't get around that fact. So when he talks about hearing and doing the word of God, he's saying, I want you to let me reorder your life as if God himself were standing here speaking to you, counseling you in how to change. This is an extraordinary claim. And so in today's passage, we see Jesus confront two storms that in a sense test this claim because he confronts two forces that are way more powerful than any human being. Forces that overwhelm us, even with the, you know, kind of the further technological advancements and things that we've made. And in the next two stories that Paul is going to preach next week, he actually uh, confronts two other forces, disease and death, with the same outcome. And so Luke, uh, the author of this gospel who compiled these stories from the apostles' testimony, he wants us to ask the question that the disciples ask in verse 25 of our passage. Who then is this? Who is this man in this story? Is he, like C.S. Lewis says, just a person suffering a deep delusion or a manipulative liar like the worst of cult leaders that we could imagine? Or is he something else? So first, let's look at the storms that Jesus confronts. 
That's the first thing we're going to look at. We're going to see Jesus confront two storms. First, we see him face off against an external storm. So let's read verses 22 and 23 again. It says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. So in verse 24, it adds also that the waves were raging as well. Um, So the disciples are out on a boat with Jesus on a a lake that's massive. You know, it's kind of like an inland sea that they used for their livelihood. They would fish it um, to, you know, as their profession. So four of the disciples are professional fishermen. Um, they're, they're just obviously doofuses in so many other ways through the rest of the gospels that it's kind of hard to remember that they're competent in anything, but these, at least four of these guys, they're professional fishermen. This is what they do. And they are utterly at the mercy of this storm. They're totally overwhelmed by the wind and the waves. And they think in that moment, they're going to drown. Their sails are useless if they haven't been destroyed and the boat's rocking so badly it's filling up with water. So they were in danger, which is what Luke says, is a dramatic understatement. And a storm, which is what they're in, is a force that's outside our control, that has us at its mercy. Most of us aren't regularly in danger from weather events, but we do live in, you know, hurricane territory. Uh, And I moved here from an area prone to tornadoes. Uh, And when you're in a huge storm, you feel how small and fragile your life is. The pastor of our old church had uh, started that church, and it was in the first year. And they had a huge oak tree in their front yard. And in that first year of the church being started, there came a tornado or just a huge windstorm, and it blew that tree over, and it cut their house in half like a knife going through butter. Thankfully, everyone was fine. They were in a different part of the house than what the tree landed on. But there was absolutely nothing they could have done in that moment, or even before, really, to shore up their house against being cut in half by a huge oak tree, apart from, you know, felling the tree itself. That storm had them totally at their mercy. And by God's grace, you know, they they were okay. In the passage we'll read next week, we'll see Jesus face the external forms, the external storms of disease and death which are maybe probably much more relevant to our lives than uh, weather events are, much more regular. A few sermons ago, I shared this quote from Atul Gawande, who's a physician and a Harvard professor, who, as far as I know, isn't religious. He wrote, Death is the enemy, but the enemy has superior forces. Eventually, it wins. So for all our technological and medical advances, eventually the storm wins. It's one thing or another, all of us eventually die. We get taken by a force that's bigger than us, an external storm. The second story in our passage today isn't about an external storm, but an internal one. So we see the backstory to this in verses 27 and 29. If you'll look in verse 27, it says, When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And then in the second half of 29, there's a little parenthetical reference. It says, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. This man has been under one of the most intense kinds of internal storm for a long time, says in verse 27. He's under an extreme form of evil that made him more like a wild animal than a human. 
living without clothes, among the places where the dead were buried, out in the wilderness instead of in the community of human beings. So his fellow humans were so lost as to what to do with him, they just tried to chain him like an animal, uh, but he had the strength to break that and leave. So this man is caught in a storm of a different kind. Um, He's also a non-Jew, which we know because these people were pig herders. So he's not even part of the covenant community of Judaism. Now, I need to stop here and uh, say a few things. Um, If you're new to our church, you're probably wondering, they talk about demons? And the answer is hardly at all. Because to be honest, there are loads of other things that are broken in the world that are much more common and relevantly dangerous to our lives than this. Um, And it even doesn't come up that often in the Bible itself. So, you know, physical and mental diseases, social brokenness, personal human sin, like greed, lust, and rage, they are much more common and relevant problems for us. So we don't see, you know, demons under every rock. That being said, Christianity teaches that there is a supernatural order to reality that is every bit as real as you and I. God is a real spiritual being, and there are other real spiritual beings who oppose God and seek to do his people harm. In extreme cases that can sometimes look something like this, a person being totally overwhelmed by forces that steal their humanity. And this is is a side thing as well. I'm not going to go any further than this, but um, we're seeing a kind of a societal rise in uh, the practice of taking things like hallucinogenic drugs and also kind of seriously practicing witchcraft. And there are, there are stories that come out of that from people who weren't Christians before, aren't Christians after of encounters with really terrifying things that come through those, through this. So this is, you know, for those of us who grew up in a really rationalist kind of mini era, this sounds really strange. It's sounding less and less strange to um, people kind of experiencing more things in the world. That being said, we can be overwhelmed by other internal storms as well. Anxiety, depression, and grief can be forces or feel like forces that are bigger than our souls. Addiction can feel like a force that's bigger than us as well. I read a poem that a woman wrote to her husband who was addicted to pornography, and as far as I can tell, he was at the time totally unrepentant. It was really painful to read. Um, Here are just a, a few of the lines, and it's not in meter or rhyme. But she writes, when does it end? I can tell you this. It has not ended in your soul. It has eaten you up. It's cancer. Do you think you can feed on a diet of hatred and come out of your locked room to love? Internal storms can eat us alive just as much as external ones can. They can make us feel caught in a chaos that's beyond our control. And I'll just say here, if you're in a storm right now, please come talk to us. Come talk to me or to Paul or any of the other leaders in the church. One of the things that we're here for is to do our best to be with and to help people who are caught in storms. And so if this is you, we want to talk to you. Please come talk to us. So Jesus confronts these two storms. And remember, the big question is, can his word really be trusted? Can he back up the things that he claims that he can do, the things that he is asking people to do? Is there extraordinary power to match these extraordinary claims? Does the kingdom of God get swallowed up in the storms of this life? So we already read the story, but we know the answer. 
And Jesus conquers the storms and brings peace. That's the second point. Jesus conquers these storms and brings peace. Let's look at verse 24. And they went and awoke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased. And there was a calm. Jesus' disciples are panicking. They wake him up. In Mark's version of the story, in Mark's gospel, they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They wake him up because on some level they think he might be able to help, but they sound a lot more desperate than trusting. They say, Jesus, there's a storm. You're sleeping through it. You might not be aware, but we're in trouble. We're going to drown. You, you know, we think you might care about this. Jesus wakes up and he says to the windstorm, sit down and be quiet. That's what Mark records. He says, peace, be still. Jesus tells the storm to hush up like it's a barking dog and it hushes up. The wind and the raging waves cease and there's calm. The storm that was so much bigger than the disciples is an obedient dog when Jesus tells it to be. Now, I'm sure at that moment, the disciples weren't, you know, like calling to mind passages of the Psalms they'd have heard in the synagogue. They weren't remembering their Sunday school lessons. Um, we would love that if that was the case, but uh, we're realistic. So, um, but I'm also sure that later, as they were reflecting on these things, Psalm 107 would have come to mind. So let's turn there briefly. Psalm 107 is on page 507 of the Blue Bibles. So keep a thumb in Luke, flip back, page 507, Psalm 107. And let's look at verses 26 through 30. Psalm 107, 26 through 30. I hear a lot of rustling. I can wait a minute longer. All right. It says, They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. This describes men in a storm at sea. It says they mounted up to heaven and went down to the depths by the waves. They're caught up in this storm. Their courage melted away. They're reeling and staggering at their wits end. And then what? They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. The waves of the sea hushed. He turned the storm to peace. So if you look, you can see how the Lord there in verse 28 is in small caps. So that means that God's name, Yahweh, is written there. So these men in the psalm cried out to Yahweh, and he shut up the storm and brought peace. In our passage in Luke, the disciples cry out to Jesus, and he shuts up the storm and makes peace. In the passage after this, in the rest of Luke 8, he does the same thing with a crippling physical affliction and with death itself. He takes these external storms, these forces that are so much bigger than us, and he makes them disappear. So he shows himself to be stronger than the forces that are stronger than us. Let's turn back to our passage, because we see him do the same thing with the internal storm in the second story. If we look at the passage again, starting in verse 28, 
When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Once again, Jesus faces a force that has overpowered this man, and he commands it to leave. And there's this odd exchange where we find out it's not just one demon, but a legion, a storm of them. And Jesus drives them out into this herd of pigs. But the point is that we see the end result of this action in verse 35. It says, then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. The storm that had overcome this man is gone. No longer is he naked, wild, and alone. He's clothed, and he's sitting peacefully in Jesus' presence. Jesus has conquered his storm and made peace. Now, there's an aberration of Christianity that says faith in Jesus provides miraculous deliverance from all external storms all the time. That if you have enough faith, or the right kind of faith, that you'll never have disease, you'll never have death, you'll never have any issues or problems. Uh, that is not true. It's not true from the Bible. It's not true from life. Um, it's often called the prosperity gospel. So Jesus might do those things like he does in the story. He might grant miraculous healing or protection from disaster. But that's not the main thing to take out of these stories. In these passages, Jesus shows us a glimpse of the power of the kingdom of God which will come to earth fully in the new creation. So the apostle John has a vision of this uh, told in the book of Revelation. So in Revelation 21, John writes, he sees, says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So he sees heaven and earth reunited and he hears God say, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So God promises a final eternal peace in the new creation. Everyone reasonable knows that something is wrong with the world. Um, I don't know anyone who like actually claims in 2022 that the world is fine and just needs to be left alone, that everything's okay. We all know it's not. Christianity teaches that that wrongness wasn't built in from the beginning, that it's part of, you know, it's a result of human sin. We call it the fall. So the forces we see in this passage that are, are forces that are part of that fall. And so what we see Jesus do is we see him give a glimpse. You could call it a down payment. You could call it a proof of concept. You could call it an appetizer, you know, whatever you might think of. But it's, it's a glimpse of a new creation where those forces are gone, where their power is broken and they've been expelled from the earth. That there's a world with no external or internal storms. And once again, this isn't a guarantee that all external storms and even all internal storms, all addiction, sin, mental illness, or spiritual evil will be alleviated in this life. They might be. Um, I know a pastor from a past church who was a deep alcoholic before he became a Christian. Um, he was actually the first person put under church discipline by his church uh, for alcoholism when he was a member. And then he'd been restored and was a pastor, you know, decades later. God did some amazing work in his life. And even his desire to get drunk disappeared. So God can do that. But the real point of this passage is that a small display of the kingdom of heaven breaks into the earth and shows the promise of what the world will be like. 
We see that little down payment of the beautiful peace that Jesus guarantees his people. That there's going to be a time when we are free of external and internal storms. Suffering, sickness, mental illness, addiction, anger, lust, and everything else. There's a line in the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that we don't sing that often, but that I really love. It's, Oh, that day when, freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. I think of my own sin, and the promise of being freed from that is such good news. So what we see in this life isn't the end of all suffering and temptation yet. But what we do see often is that as we entrust our lives to Jesus, he starts growing that kingdom in us and ending or easing the storms in our souls. He begins restoring our humanity like he did for this demon-possessed man and making us into the people that we were created to be. The Apostle Paul summarizes this really well in his letter to Titus. Um, So we're going to close here. Um, We're actually going to turn to the passage I read as an assurance of pardon. It's Titus chapter 3 which is on page 998 of the Blue Bibles. Page 998, Titus chapter 3. So we look first at verse 3. Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, hating by God, or passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. You can hear the internal storms, foolishness, spiritual adultery, slaves to passion and pleasure and envy. Paul says we were as deep in our own storms as the demon-possessed man in the story. But we keep reading. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. God didn't leave us to our storms. By his own mercy, he saved us by manifesting his goodness and loving kindness, by bringing a little bit of his kingdom to us. We celebrated Easter a week ago, which seems like a month ago to me. I don't know how it feels to you, but it feels an age ago, seven days. Um, But over Easter weekend, we saw how Jesus told us that he was going to die as a sacrifice for our sins, that he was going to face the ultimate external storm of death by crucifixion, and the ultimate internal storm of drinking down his own righteous anger against the malice and evil and envy of the world. He went down under those storms. And we also saw on Sunday how he rose again, leaving the storms in the grave forever into a new life that he pours out on us richly, like this passage says, a life that gives us reconciliation to God, hope for a new creation, and the power to begin becoming truly human in his peace. That's what Paul means by good works in this last verse. It doesn't mean that we tack good deeds onto our life. It means that we look for ways to manifest the mercy and love of God that we have received into the world around us so that we see his kingdom grow a little bit through what we have received. We look for ways to testify to the kingdom of God in what we say and what we do. 
my mom's dad, my grandfather, uh, died when I was about 10. Um, he lived in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I re- remember him and my grandmother as these just warm country people. So he just told us goofy stories. Um, you know, we, uh, he didn't have any formal education, but he was an occasional preacher at their church as well. But as we got older, my mom told me that that hadn't always been who he was. Um, he was a World War II veteran who'd been part of storming the beaches in Normandy. And she said he never talked about that, never told anyone about that experience. And most of her young life, he'd been a heavy drinker and a chaotic, verbally violent man. The atmosphere of their house had been storms most of the time. But God saved him in his adulthood and transformed him so that by the time I came along, I didn't see any of that. All I saw was that their house was a place of joy and peace, a place that testified to the love and the hope of the kingdom of God. He didn't do anything extraordinary in the sense of, you know, building a huge speaking platform or starting a nonprofit, but he showed the grace of God through ordinary acts of kindness to his family and his neighbors. And their home was a little outpost of the kingdom of God. In the story we read today, the man that Jesus delivers asks to go with him. And Jesus says, no, he sends the man back to his hometown to live a normal life and tell his neighbors what God had done for him, how God had delivered him from his storm. I wish we knew the rest of this man's story. We'll have to find out the new creation. We don't have anything else written about it. But this is the life of a person delivered from storms, an ordinary restored human life, testifying to the merciful power of God and how we live and how we speak. And we pray that this is the life of everyone who's experienced God's grace through Jesus at our church. Let's pray. Jesus, you show yourself more powerful than the forces that are more powerful than us. You show here a bit of your power that you bring a kingdom that is bigger than our external storms and our internal storms. I pray that we could hope in that power. I pray that it would lead us to trust in you, to experience your mercy poured out on us, and to become places and people where your mercy and your hope are known. Pray this in your name. Amen.